Welcome back, everybody. <clears throat> Hello. Um, <laughs> welcome back to class. At our last meeting, we didn't really get through all the things that I wanted to, but that's okay because some people weren't even here. Um, we distributed the syllabus. I gave some background. It was a little bit scattershot. Hopefully, some of the background that we got in uh, the, like one of the most important bits of historical background to set up what we're going to do today, which is to launch right into Descartes' meditations on first philosophy, the first and the second meditation um, is the Copernican revolution that's going on in the background, a scientific revolution about whether the Earth is the center of the universe or whether maybe something else is the center of the universe as long as it's not the Earth. For example, if the Earth went around the Sun rather than the Sun going around the Earth, that would constitute a major perspectival shift and a major theoretical shift. And I just want to like check in with you guys for a second. Do you have any appreciation for what a mind-blowing sort of advancement that must have been for people, and how difficult it is to make that sort of theoretical shift. We all take it for granted, because it's all we've ever been told. But you could forgive somebody for maybe thinking, to the, thinking the contrary, right? That, like, from where I am, it looks like the sun goes around the earth. It rises in the east, and it sets in the west. And even if I'm real scientifically slick, and I know that, like, the Earth is not flat, but it's an oblate spheroid. I know that the sun is, and the moon are going around, and all the stars are going around. And that's really how it seems. But there are some, oh, there are some little bits that don't really quite add up in that theory. They don't add up, they don't really match observation. There are some planetary bodies, some celestial bodies, that are not really following the pattern that you would expect. And in order to make it work, this Ptolemaic theory that puts the Earth at the center, standing still and everything else moving around it in concentric spheres, in perfect motion, that that sort of a theory has to start to get like really embroidered. There are like all kinds of like, oh, if we build in this extra assumption, then we can accommodate the observations. If we build in this extra assumption, then we can accommodate the observations. And around this time, people are starting to make all kinds of really good observations of the heavens. Because as somebody mentioned, I forget who it was, somebody mentioned that like we have telescopes now in the 1600s. And some folks are getting really, really good at making them and pointing them at stuff, like Galileo. And the political climate... I'm a, like surrounding all of this is one that lands Galileo in front of the Inquisition and ultimately under house arrest, forced to renounce any support for the Copernican model that puts the Earth going around the Sun instead of the Sun going around the Earth. So it's dangerous to be a geocentrist. Fair enough? Dangerous enough that I think we, I, I ran this by you guys at our last meeting. If the Pope came to you and said say that the sun goes around the earth or will torture you, would you say that the sun went around the earth? Yeah, probably. Is that, yeah, is that because you're a coward? Is that because you're, you're crafty? You're prudential? Some folks, like, and I think I mentioned this at our last meeting too, and anybody who's coming from the ancient class knows that like, sometimes people don't, they don't kowtow. They just, they'll stand up and they'll say, like, I'm going to tell the truth. And we'll say, but we're going to kill you if you tell the truth. And they're like, oh, well, very well, then. You're going to have to kill me. Socrates did this. Is that brave? Is it foolish? Yeah. Yes, it's foolish. I don't, I don't. Are they mutually exclusive? I think they might be. And Aristotelian would say, if courage is a virtue, it has no part of foolishness, at least. That courage, there's recklessness. That's the thing that sometimes people think of as like foolish courage. But that's not real courage. 
that's the sort of thing that like vicious people mistake for courage sometimes. They think that's courageous, but courage is having the right amount of fear towards the right sorts of things, such that you can stand up in the face of the stuff that you can handle, and you smartly run away when you can't handle it. Yeah. Pick your battles, yeah. And geocentrism, heliocentrism, that's not a battle to pick. That's not a hill to die on. You can live another day maybe when they don't care. To stay under house arrest and not say anything else about it. Otherwise, they will kill you. Yeah, maybe in secret. Or you like see all your friends, you'd be like, I don't really believe that, though. Yeah, Michael. Uh, I would say if you're creating some kind of metric as to whether you could die on the cross, then I would say... It doesn't have to be on the cross, could be anywhere. Could be on, on, on a lounge with some hemlock. Yeah. That's true. Um, how many followers do you have? Ah. Like how greatly they can spread your philosophy and legacy after death? Yeah, what sort of impact would my death create? And for most of us, we're thinking, like, not much. At least not a scientific, like, the scientific world won't be like, oh my god, they killed Adam. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, yeah, Corbin? Is it Corbin? Okay, right, cool. Yeah, it, telling the truth was a really big deal for Socrates. Maybe it wasn't such a big deal for Galileo. Maybe that wasn't like his thing. Was like we always tell the truth and we never harm anybody. Like Socrates would tell that to anybody who would listen. And then when it comes time to like lie and perhaps undermine the laws of the city of Athens, only to save my own skin by running away and shirking my punishment, Socrates says like this is completely contrary to everything that I've been, pre and I still believe it. It's not like I can't change my mind. I just don't see any good reason to change my mind. The only difference now, bet between now and, like, what I was saying before, the circumstances when I was talking before, is, like, now I've actually got to put up. Now, like, there's actually something on the line for me. And if I just talk big when there's nothing on the line and then run away when something is on the line, then I'm a coward. And that's a problem, maybe. Okay. Yeah, one last comment about, about courage, intellectual courage, and then we'll get into... Descartes it's, a, it's a judgment of whether you value life or moral superiority more at that point. Um, I don't know if moral superiority is what's on the other side, but yeah. As opposed to yeah. you know, telling the truth and consider morally superior to life. Sure, sure, yeah. So, for example, like we might say that there's got to be some sort of, like, it's not just about staying alive, right? Like, you've got to stay alive and, like, do well when you're alive, it's not just about surviving, it's about flourishing. And perhaps there are some ways of being alive that are not worth hanging on to. Maybe being alive in excruciating pain all the time is not a way of being alive that's worth holding on to. Maybe being alive and having no respect for yourself is a tough one. To like, and like we might figure out, like, why? Is it just that like, you, know, you need people to like, give you more compliments? So you just have low self-esteem? Is that the problem? You're like, no, I don't respect myself because I do things that I know are wrong all the time. You're like, oh, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's worse than death. Okay. So Descartes' a guy. He's a French guy. He's a relatively wealthy guy. I think I mentioned that he'd, he'd played both sides in the, in the Thirty Years' War, um, ended up on the Catholic side like any good Frenchman would, 
and uh, was an engineer. He was a strategist. He, like, did a tour as a soldier, as a soldier. Was never at, in any serious risk, maybe, like, catching a cold or something in the camp. And then after he manages to get away from the war, he, he kind of, like, secludes himself away in a place where he says, I'm just going to sit down for six days straight and I'm going to think on some problems. This is the meditations. Descartes at least claims that this is the product of like six days of just sitting and thinking and not doing anything else. No interruptions from anybody. It's like, you know, it's like exam week. You just kind of like hold yourself away. Don't talk to anybody else and just think for six days straight. And this is what he produces. Day one is meditation one. Day two, meditation two. Perhaps extemporaneous. Perhaps he just like walked into the cabin, day one, started writing meditation one. Perhaps there was some kind of plan the whole time. Maybe he didn't even do it in six days. Who cares? He's walking us through this kind of like successive meditative thought, this reflection on difficult questions that are not just difficult because they're difficult to answer, but because it's difficult to find a safe and reasonable place to ask them. The sorts of questions that he's asking here in Meditation 1 are not well-suited to the world out there. You can't be functional or effective out in the world as long as you're doing the sorts of things that Descartes is doing. Like, you can't... Uh, what he's coming up... What is, what is the big theme in Meditation 1? If I could just get, like... If you could sum it up in one word, what is one word that, get, that tells us, like, what's going on in Meditation 1? Yeah. Certainty. Only, uh, is he talking about, uh, yeah, close. Give me the other, give me the other side of the coin, shall I? Doubt. Yeah, doubt. And he comes up with like a, a fair, or skepticism sometimes is a word that people will talk about in terms of skepticism. Adopting an attitude of doubt. You can't be completely full of doubt all the time, right? If like you're crossing the street and a van is coming right at you and you're like, maybe the van's real, maybe it's not real. Should I continue crossing the street? Well, I'm not sure. What are the pros and cons? And you're like sitting there, like this is not an appropriate attitude for crossing the street. It's not an appropriate attitude for lots of other things. And I think maybe this is an interesting point to make in the first sort of reading that you'll get in any philosophy class. Which is that, like, kind of the, the, the cognitive and intellectual labor that's required for doing philosophy is the sort of thing you've got to set time aside for. Because ordinary life doesn't lend itself very well to it. Now, maybe you don't have to be all alone. Descartes takes this on as a solitary endeavor. Maybe you could do like Socrates does and go do your philosophy with other people. But it's a, kind of like a special space that you carve out. It doesn't have to be in, like, ivory towers with, like, bearded dudes and, like, leather patches on their jackets, and stuff like that. It's not fancy, but it is special. And Descartes takes some time out to do this. Doubt is the name of the game in Meditation 1. He's getting us to doubt. But it's not like a, it's not skepticism as a way of life. Anybody who's coming from the ancient philosophy class, there was a group of folks called the skeptics who said, in life, develop this attitude of withholding judgment, of not necessarily believing, or for that matter, disbelieving any claim but knowing that there are reasons for it, and there are probably reasons running the other way, too. And a skeptic, a person who's like mastered this skill of suspending judgment, will find themselves in a kind of an intellectual peace. They won't be bothered. 
Maybe that's right, maybe that's not. But that's a form of skepticism that's talking about a way of life. Descartes is not talking about like going out into the rest of the world with this sort of skepticism. He's talking about what we might refer to as a methodological skepticism. Which is to say, for the sake of an academic exercise, we're going to suspend judgment. Descartes is not saying, like, for realsy realsies, throw all your beliefs out and just leave them on the side of the road. He's saying, for now, for these six meditations, we're suspending judgment on things. Yes? What do you mean, an element of perception? He uses these as examples sometimes to talk about, like... Yeah, like, he was using emotionalities, but it was like the fire was, like, a safe place. Oh, not yeah. A, like, not a safe place, safe place, but, like, something you can go back to as, like, a reference. Not a trademark safe space, safe space. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's a, it's a place where you can think, which maybe that's all that, like, safe spaces are, places where, like, you can think without being interrupted. That's a, that's a good version of what a safe space would be. But yeah, okay. Yeah, there's there are like some literary embellishments going on here. Although I'll, I'll I'll say Descartes is not my favorite writer of the Western canon. He's not he's not a beautiful writer. Well, maybe maybe I'm wrong there. All right, methodological doubt or skepticism. Do we get we get what the doubt is all about? We get that it means suspending judgment. It's not believing something, obviously, but it's also not disbelieving things, right? It's not thinking that things are false. Because that itself is a belief. Believing that something is false, right? Versus believing something is true. He's suspending judgment. So doubt or suspension of judgment. Skepticism. Sometimes folks will talk about non-belief. It's not belief or disbelief. It's non-belief. And it's methodological. It's just for the sake of this philosophical exercise. Why? Like, why would we adopt an attitude of doubt as a philosophical exercise? Like, why, like, why is that an interesting starting point? He's, yeah. questioning, like, the He's questioning the foundations of his beliefs, yeah. Why is he questioning the foundations of his beliefs? Just for yucks? Like, is that a good thing to do? Should you question the foundations of your beliefs? Yeah, while we're talking about analogies and metaphors, like, Founda like a foundation of a house, if it's no good, the, house, the entire house is going to collapse. Do your damnedest to do like awesome architecture on top of a shoddy foundation, and it doesn't matter what else you build on it or how careful you are. If the foundation's no good, the whole thing is going to rot. Does he have good reason to suspect the foundations of his beliefs? Yeah. If you go your whole life with only believing what other people tell you, then you're not thinking for yourself. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Have you ever thought for yourself? Has it always been based on things that other people told you? Are things that you've taken on the basis of authority from like other people, are those at the foundations of your beliefs? You might have done some thinking for yourself, but you did them with the tools, the conceptual tools that other people gave, them, gave to you. Is that thinking for yourself? If you think with somebody else's, I think you think with somebody else's ideas. Certainly not free will of 
let's table that for just a little while. It's also possible that at some point in today's class, somebody will be like, yeah, but what does exist mean? And I'll be like, one thing at a time, please. But yes, that's true. Assuming that free will exists, and Descartes seems to be of the opinion that free will does exist, and I think most of us seem to be at least under the operational opinion as if free will existed. Where was that going? Oh, yeah. Why? Why adopt this attitude of doubt? I'll give you a hint instead of like, setting up the scenario where it seems like I'm fishing for a particular answer, and you're like, what does he want to hear? What does he want to hear? Because that's not thinking for yourself. That's thinking for me. Descartes walks us through, like, three sets of reasons, these kind of, like, successive sort of, like, here's a reason to suspend judgment on some things. And he goes through, there's a kind of, like, three-step process by which he gets us to this attitude. The final attitude that he gets us to, the, the whole point of Meditation 1, which is to get us to this position of methodological doubt. What are these three steps? This might help. Did that help at all, or did that hurt? And some hands were up, and they went down. Jack. Um, is one of the steps taking complex things and making them more simple because simple things are more easily provable? Yeah, but that doesn't get us towards doubt, right? Give me a reason. Give me like one concrete reason to doubt something. I got things from other people. I don't know if they're trustworthy. Maybe they're trustworthy, maybe they're not. That seems like a reason, but it's not one that Descartes pulls. Yes, Corinne. Um, that if you can see something in your dreams, Okay, we got something about dreams. Yeah, there was something before the dream thing. In fact, I'll, I'll kind of even, like, dreams, dreaming. Dreaming? That's, like, one of them. Before he even gets to dreaming... The senses, yeah, the senses are untrustworthy. The senses deceive. Is that right? Deceive, C-E-I-V-E? I I before E, but except after C. But if there was going to be an exception, it'd be deceive, right? That'd be the one that gets you. The senses deceive. I might be dreaming, and eventually he gets us to a third thing, but, like, I'll I'll, uh, I'll let that be a mystery for now. And you might be thinking, like, I know it. I know what the third thing is. All right, hold on to it. Let's go through these two things first. The senses can deceive me. Do you agree that the senses can deceive you? Like the whole thing that like kicks this off is like Descartes basically basically saying to his audience, like, hey, you ever been wrong about something? And like you were sure that it was true, and then it turned out like, whoops, I was wrong. You have you been wrong about things that you felt certain about? Okay. What kinds of things are the source of this error. And the first one that he identifies is like, maybe the senses, because we've all been here, right? You saw something, it looked red, and then you realized that there was a red light shining on it, and it wasn't actually red, it was white. Have you had that experience? You see some optical illusion that pops up on your Facebook feed, and you're like, whoa, those lines are crooked, like, no way, hold a ruler up to them, they're straight. Whoa. You're walking across campus and you see your friend and you're like, hey! And then you get up closer and you're like, uh, that is not my friend and I feel like an asshole. <laughs> Far away, it looks like there's water. Up close, there is no water. Far away, things seem small. Up close, they seem big. The senses mislead you, right? And not just our eyes, but like all of our senses. People have their arms chopped off, and yet they feel intense pain in their arm that they don't have anymore. 
Descartes was a soldier in times of, like, bad medicine. So he knew all about this. Sometimes you smell this, like, smell of burning toast. And there is no burning toast. You're having a stroke instead. <laughs> Sometimes you smell something, but you can't really tell what it... Uh, I, in last time we taught this, there was a bartender in the class, and he said... Sometimes people ask for a drink and, like, I don't have the stuff to make the drink. But if they, like, want, like, a grape drink, as long as it's fruity and purple, nobody says boo. <laughs> Everyone's like, yeah, that's totally grape. In blind smell tests, most people can't tell the difference between Parmesan cheese and vomit. Our senses are unreliable, no? We make mistakes with them, which isn't to say that they're not a tool that we should ever use. But sometimes they give us faulty information or the judgments that we make from the information that we get from our senses are faulty, at least. We'll get into that in Meditation 4. But for starters, at least, if we were going to start with, like, where are my judgments the least reliable or where are they most obviously prone to error, seems like the senses. And he's, like, right on, like, he's in good platonic company here. He's not saying anything that the church masters at the Sorbonne are going to sneeze at. They're going to be like, yeah, right, the senses, the body, all of that horrible stuff that like our religion doesn't care about that much, like mortification of the flesh. It's the immortal soul. That's what's important. Bodies aren't as important. So the senses also, not so reliable. Can't see God. That's because you know all the best things without the senses. And maybe that's true. Maybe you do know all the best things without the senses. Descartes might not disagree with this. He's setting this up as like, well, first and foremost, the senses are unreliable. Sorry, Pearson, I was just steamrolling right over your hand there. I, I really think he's got a very solid point here, but at the same time, in all those examples he gave, it became apparent to you that it was an illusion because you sense. It was a, uh, senses to see, well, that's not actually a puddle. Yeah, my senses. is actually a white light. But I'm actually, am I sure that, like, is the mirage when I'm far away and not when I'm up close? I just know that I get conflicting information from my senses sometimes. And yeah, it's true that, like, eventually you found out that you were wrong because your more information from your senses told you otherwise. I don't know if that's how it always works. Yeah. Yeah, I might be able to come up with some examples otherwise, right? Like if I drew something like, how can I do it? I don't think I can do it. I don't even know why I'm trying. Yeah. Um. And then there's more, right? It's like, I gotta do that. And I gotta... Ah, I told you I couldn't do it. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's a triangle like this, and you look at it, and you're like, looks like it goes round and round and round and round. But you know that it can't possibly do that, right? It's not your senses that tell you that that's an illusion. Uh -huh. um, it's the intellect that tells you that it's not an illusion. That it is an illusion. That it's... Yeah. That things aren't as they seem. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, maybe it's conflicted seemings that tell me that like things aren't always as they seem. Maybe it's the intellect that sometimes tells me that things aren't, al aren't always as they seem. Either way, sensory seemings, if you're looking for places where you might make mistakes, that's a good place to look. So Descartes says, all right, fine then. If we're looking to form a firm foundation, if we're looking to figure out like what's, and this is like a big part of the whole project here, foundationalism. 
We're looking to find something that I'm absolutely certain of that I can base all of my other judgments on. Because if I don't have anything that I'm certain on, then there is, there is not going to be any firm foundation. And everything else after that is just guesswork. So he's looking to find a firm foundation, and he says, not going to find it in the senses. They deceive. But, while it is the case that my senses deceive me, it's not like there isn't anything at all there, right? When I was like walking across the quad, and I saw my friend, but it wasn't my friend. It's not like it, there wasn't anybody there. And when I see the object, when I see the set of towels, and I'm like, those towels are beige, but then under natural light, they're gray. Like, there's a towel. I'm not sure what color it is, maybe. But there's something there. And it's got a color. So Descartes kind of, like, backs off, and he's like, yeah, the senses can deceive, but that doesn't necessarily tell me that, like, I should doubt everything. I should just be cautious about the sort of information that I get from my senses. There still seemingly have to be objects that I'm perceiving. And there would still seemingly have to be the sorts of properties that I perceive in them. I just might be mistaken about some of their intensities and extensions. But, is it the case that every time you see something, there's actually something that you see? Yeah? Every time you see something? Well, what, yeah, what, how, what, what's this? What am I doing here? Have you ever seen something without there being something there to see? when you were engaging in recreational substances. <laughs> or perhaps asleep. No, that's really asleep, right? You could dream, right? You could be dreaming. And when you dream, you have something like sensory experiences, but there's nothing causing them. It's just your own mind making them. Not only dreaming, but hallucinating as well. Descartes entertains the prospect that, like, maybe I'm hallucinating. Maybe I'm a madman. And then he goes, like, but I'm not a madman. So, like, let's not, well, we don't have to worry about that. But, like, no mad person does think that they're a mad person. That's part of why they're mad. So, like, I don't know how he decides to buy himself out of that. But eventually he does, he lands at this place where he's saying, he's saying that, like, look, I don't always know. I've had dreams that at the time, they seemed really real. Have you ever had a dream? While you were in the dream, it seemed really real. Yeah, sometimes you dream, yeah, sometimes you dream you're at work and you don't even get paid for the dream when you're at work. That's terrible. Sometimes you have you ever had a dream that you came to class? I have not had that dream. But I might tonight. Yeah, and sometimes folks will talk about lucid dreaming, where has anybody ever experienced this, where like you did realize you were dreaming in the middle of your dream, and then when you realized that, you were like, so I'm in charge, and now you can make your dream whatever you want, which sounds pretty dope. I've never done it myself, but like that sounds like, that sounds like a time. I'm completely wasting my sleeping hours by not going on like awesome adventures in my dreams. Oh, it goes away. I thought you would wake up. You're like, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. I'm not really here. I'm in my... And then, like, you're awake. And you're like, no! 
Either way, the whole point here is that are you absolutely certain that you're not dreaming right now? Uh, Shy? Deceive you. Your senses can deceive you, not perceive you. You perceive with your senses. I guess your senses can perceive you, too. Yeah. So, yeah, Descartes, as he's, as he's doing the whole, like, here I am, he kind of, like, paints a portrait for us. He's like, I believe right now that I'm in my dressing gown. he got the quill in my hand, the ink pot on the desk with me. I'm sitting by the fire. I can feel its warmth. But... I might be dreaming. It's not just that, like, oh, the fire's colder than I think it is. Maybe there is no fire. Now, at this point, maybe he's, like, bless you. Maybe he's navel-gazing in a way where you're like, I get what you were saying before, Rosenfeld, about, like, don't do this shit in public. Like, <laughs> but does he have a point? If what he's looking for is absolute certainty in his foundation, he can't be absolutely certain that there are any things at all. This whole, the entirety of his life, might be the product of a hallucination or a dream. Or maybe he's in the Matrix or something like that. Plenty of contemporary thought experiments that are kind of like pulling at the same idea. If you want to go back before Descartes, maybe something like Plato's Allegory of the Cave is doing a similar sort of thing. Maybe everything that you know is false and the product of some sort of illusion. So, yeah, maybe more. More's got to go. He's like, ah, don't trust your senses, but there's still things. And he's like, Maybe there aren't even things. But, yeah, but, maybe we don't need to get rid of everything. I, did you find yourself a little impatient with Descartes at this point? Were you just kind of like, I know where you're going. You're going to, like, say, like, doubt everything. Why are we, like, going through this process of, like, doubt these things? and then doubt these things, and you're like, yeah, 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 I get it, it's going to be everything. And you're like, Wait, whoa, let's do it step by step. These things, and these things. Did you get a little impatient? Ironically, it felt like listening to the ramblings of a madman. Ramblings of a madman. Or, you know, just a metaphysician. Mm-hmm. Or somebody who can't rule out the possibility that he might be a madman. Which, if, let's all be honest, none of us can. Not with absolute certainty, at least. It could be a good gamble that, like, I'm pretty sure I'm sane. But I'm not sure. But yet still, we don't need to get rid of everything just yet. And it's important that we maybe don't get rid of everything. I'm just kind of to, like, give you some sense of, like, how radical, because eventually this is going to get to a place where we're going to add another word to the board, and it's going to be radical. Radical methodological doubt. One of the reasons why we might want to avoid suspending judgment on all of our beliefs is that we might afterwards stop and say, okay, now what? How are you going to rebuild with nothing? Nothing. He's going to have no... If he gets rid of all of his beliefs, then he will have no beliefs with which to come up with new beliefs. If you've ever been in a critical thinking course or like learned anything about arguments, you get to conclusions by using premises. If you don't have any premises, what the hell kinds of arguments are you going to be able to make? So he's cautious 
about adopting this skepticism. It's not radical right off the bat. First, it's just an empirical sort of skepticism. Doubt the senses. Then it's like, well, shit, maybe I'm hallucinating. But yet, even if I'm hallucinating or if I'm dreaming, I can't dream up stuff just out of thin air. Isn't that right? Like, you've never, like, have you ever dreamt up something, like, from nothing at all? Can you dream about things that don't exist? No. I wonder, like, there might be some, some things to kind of sort out here. But, yeah, Benjamin. You come up with things in your dreams. Yeah, right. So, like, if you dreamt you came to class, it's because, Descartes would say, like, it's because you've been to class before, right? Your dreams and hallucinations just kind of, like, take memories of other sense experiences that you've had of things, and they just kind of recombine them in weird ways, sometimes in really exotic ways. We might say something like, look, just because I had a dream about a unicorn, just because I hallucinated a pink elephant, doesn't mean that there are unicorns and pink elephants. As a matter of fact, I'm fairly certain that without painting the elephant or gluing the horn to the horse, there are no unicorns or pink elephants. But yet I can imagine them, and yet I can hallucinate them, and yet I can dream about them. How do I do this? Well, uh, there are horses. There are horns. There's the number one. And when you put all those things together, you get a unicorn. And there are elephants, and there are all kinds of colors, and elephants have colors. They're usually gray. And I've also experienced pink things, and I just rearrange them. So Descartes reasons that, like, even if I'm dreaming or hallucinating, I need some kind of mental fuel to do the dreaming or hallucinating. I need to have gotten those ideas from someplace. And maybe it's not like we say, like, oh, I had a dream about a unicorn. They're like, well, something real fueled that. But maybe not the unicorn. Maybe not even the horse and the horn. Perhaps there, there have got to be some sort of, like, simple universal concepts that I can't have had any experiences without at least having those as, as kind of matter for my mind to work with. Yeah, correct. But could you deform that face? Could you dream of a face that you've seen with a bigger nose? Or, like, blue eyes instead of brown eyes or something like that? Yeah. Enough mushing around with that and, like, I don't know, at a certain point we're like, that's an old face with a new spin. Sometimes we want to be like, ah, that's a new face. Yeah. Or here's another similar sort of a thing. Do you think you could have a dream or could you imagine 360 vision? Like, completely, I, there was in a class once with somebody who was like, I had a dream that I had 360 vision once, and I was like, bullshit, you did. <laughs> There's no way. There's no way, because all of our visual experience is, like, bounded by this horizon, right? It's, like, vaguely rectangular, which is why you always, always, always take a video with your phone sideways in landscape, not in portrait. Nobody, I, nobody's eyes are like this. Don't do that shit. <laughs> our eyes are like this, and that makes our field of vision, like, yeah. Right? And there's always some boundedness to have a field of vision that's completely unbounded. Like, I believe that, like, some, somebody might have a dream where they could turn their focus from in front to behind without turning their head around. But a, an endless field of vision? 
Ah, I don't know, man. I ain't buying it because you've never had that experience before. So yeah, maybe there's something to this, that all of our dreams and hallucinations need some sort of experiential fuel, but of what? And Descartes says, there are some really good candidates for this. This is in Meditation 1. I'm working with the Cottingham translation here. You guys have, who is it? It's, uh, what was that? Bennett, yeah, Bennett. And then Haldane I provided as well, if you wanted a little bit more of a challenge. But this is all translated from the same thing, so it should mean roughly the same thing. You should be able to find something kind of like this. He says, let's go back again. By similar reasoning, although the general kinds of things, eyes, heads, hands, and so on, could be imaginary. There don't need to be like eyes and heads and hands. Could be imaginary. It must at least be admitted that there are certain other, even simpler and more universal things that are real. These are, as it were, the real colors from which we form all of the images of things. Like, can you see anything with no color at all? Oh, yeah, black and white would count as colors. And some people might see, say, glass. I would say, do you see the glass? Yeah, so can you see something with no color? See things with no color? I'd like to hear more about that after class, because I'm moving on right here. Um, da -da -da -da. These are, as it were, the real colors from which we form the images of things, whether true or false, that occur in our thought. Colors are real, even if they don't actually belong to the things that I think I'm experiencing. They're still red. They're still blue. They're still black. They're still white. The class in appears to include corporeal nature in general and its extension, the shape of extended things, the quantity or size and number of these things, the place in which they exist, the time through which they may endure, and so on. There's certain, what he refers to as simple universals, that at this stage of Descartes' skepticism, he's saying, I'm pretty sure those are still real things. And they include things like color, size, shape, extension, location, duration in time, number, quantity, etc. Really basic kind of atomic ideas that like those are primitive, like they're not made up of anything else. I can't have assembled them from other sorts of things. So those are, those are the basics. These have to be real things. And by the way, if you're looking at this and you're wondering, like, what kind of a person would think that, like, that might be the way that you make sense of the world, do keep in mind that Descartes is a mathematician. In fact, he's just recently invented analytic geometry. You know that whole... seen that before? In your travels as a student? Yeah. What do we call this? The X and Y axes that create a plane. What kind of, what do, they, what do we call the plane? The Cartesian coordinate plane. Guess why they call it the Cartesian coordinate plane? Because Descartes named it the Cartesian. Yeah, because it's named after Descartes. Cartesian means like it's Descartes. So if I talk about De Cartesian doubt, I'm talking about the kind of doubt that Descartes is like working out in Meditation 1. If I talk about platonic love, I'm talking about the theory of love that Plato talks about in Symposium, etc. Okay. So we got to have these simple universals then. Yes. Duration? Number. 
Better? Yeah. Number. Imagine to yourself, like, Descartes figured out probably, uh, for the first time, really, found a systematic way of saying, like, any shape. There was always, there had been geometry, not always, obviously. Since the dawn of time, students will start their papers, and I go, like, yeah. No, not since the dawn of time. For a long time, people knew what geometry was all about, and they knew what arithmetic was all about, but the two were kind of distinct disciplines. And they knew, like, well, they both have something to do with math, but there's no way to talk between them. And Descartes figured out that, like, you can take any shape and put it on the Cartesian coordinate plane and talk about all the points on that shape in an algebraic sort of a way. So you can do arithmetic and you can do geometry and you can shuttle back and forth between the two. It's a hugely powerful analytic tool. So yeah, you can thank Descartes for making you study this stuff, but also, you know, for engineering and stuff that is possible now because of it. <clears throat> so we've got to have these simple universals. Except, I said there was one more stage of doubt. And that's what eventually gets us to making our doubt radical. X, X, extreme doubt. What is that last step that gets us to radical doubt? Yeah. Cheating death. No. Oh, it is super radical. Cheating death is super radical. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Overthrowing the like structures that maintain power over us. That's radical too. That's not what he's talking about. Not that kind of radicality. Not free radicals in the body. What's that? What's the third stage? Yes. Oh, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. A little, a little something we like to call the evil deceiver. Imagine, if you would, a being as powerful as God, but way meaner. Meaner, meaner, meaner. Like, not, not your bro. Imagine, if you would, a being as powerful as God, but mean, and just out to deceive you all of the time. I had mentioned the Matrix when I was talking about dreams and hallucinations. Maybe it belongs here. It is entirely possible that all of the experiences that you've ever had have just been lightning bolted into your mind by somebody who's out to just make you wrong about everything. The evil deceiver could make it seem as if there are things like number and size and shape and that they follow rules, whether I'm awake or asleep. I mean, this, geometry works the same way in your dreams, doesn't it? Have you ever seen a five-sided square in a dream? Like, I've seen squares in dreams. I've seen pentagons in dreams. But I've never seen a five-sided square in a dream. Or a square with, like, angles that aren't 90 degrees. The rules of mathematics seem to work whether I'm dreaming or awake, whether I'm hallucinating or not. But as soon as this evil deceiver possibility steps on the scene, now, ooh, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I can't trust any of this stuff. Maybe even the laws of logic themselves. Like mathematics and the laws of logic, which are like, at the end of the day, maybe the same kinds of rules. Maybe the evil deceiver could make it such that every time I try to add two and two, I'm like, two plus two is one, two, three, five. And I come up with five every single time. 
Because right when I do the addition part, the evil deceiver gets into my head and it's just like, blah, 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 and like completely messes me up. infinitely powerful with infinite time on his hands <laughs> or her hands. Yeah. It's hands. Perhaps. Perhaps it's material. I don't know. Whatever conclusions I might try to come up with it are not trustworthy either. Even supposing that like the evil deceiver does exist. You're like, well, I can't be sure about that, right? Because maybe the evil deceiver makes me think that the evil deceiver does exist. <laughs> Once this is a possibility, and can we all admit that while it's a slim chance, there is a, maybe it's not even a slim chance. Instead of like the evil deceiver, I was talking about the Matrix. Like, what do you suppose, like there are like really serious arguments being floated these days that like one of a few possibilities is a certainty. It's got to be one of these things. Either one we haven't gotten to the point where we can make compelling like simulations for humans to live in yet, and we're never going to. Like We're going to kill ourselves before we develop that sort of level of technology. Or we will develop that sort of technology at some point. And if that possibility is, the, is like what's actually going to happen, then there's an overwhelming probability that we're in a simulation right now. I'm enjoying it so far. Trees of green, clouds of white. Can you be certain that you're not in a simulation right now? Because that's all that Descartes needs, right? Is to say you can't be certain that this isn't the case. And if it is the case, this means we got to throw it all out. Like, like all the furniture out of the house, tear down the walls, get rid of the foundation, bust it up. We're starting over again from scratch. We finally have radical, radical methodological doubt once this evil deceiver possibility jumps on the scene. And now it's important, like, how we got to that because now that we're in this hole, we're going to want to climb back out and we might want some landmarks on our way. So, like, be aware of how he gets to this. And it's also just not, it's not like a trivial sort of process. He doesn't just say, like, one day I decided to doubt everything. Like, no, he worked his way into that fairly radical position. And he's not saying that you should live like this, obviously. He's saying that it's for the sake of metaphysical inquiry, we're going to suspend everything so that we can get a firm foundation and build off of that foundation. And that's how we're going to have some reliability in our beliefs. Except, as I was saying before, now he's got nothing. How does he climb his way out of the hole with nothing? With meds? Sixteen forty. There was medicine. People have been chewing on herbs since they like since before there was history, since the dawn of time. If we take Galen to be the first serious scientific like doctor, that's like way before this. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. This, this, we're now like into meditation two territory, right? Because he closes meditation one with like, okay, so radical methodological doubt, right? Okay, I guess radical methodological doubt it is. Time to go to bed. Sleep tight, everybody. <laughs> Nothing's true. And we'll wake up in the morning and try to start from scratch. How are we going to do this? I don't know. 
Yeah, we'll figure... Let's tomorrow Descartes' problem. Sun rises. Little Vivaldi plays. Rooster crows. Descartes wakes up and he says, previously, in the meditations, I realized that I had erred before and I was kind of curious to like make sure that I got rid of all the erroneous ideas so that I wasn't building on a false foundation. I, re I reasoned that the senses were deceptive and so like let's get rid of any kinds of judgments that we make on the basis of sense perception. Then I realized that maybe I was dreaming and hallucinating so like we had to get rid of more and all that was left were these simple universals. And then, which like are a mathematician's dream, we would say that like this is how you would describe the entire world in mathematical terms. And then I realized that maybe there was an evil deceiver. And math, maybe that's off the books now, too. I can't trust mathematics. And I can't trust logic. I didn't express this, but hopefully we get the idea, too, that if 2 plus 2 equals 5, if that's something that the evil deceiver is doing to me, then the evil deceiver can also make me go, if P, then Q. P, therefore, not Q, obviously, right? It can make modus ponens wrong. Yes. Oh, you think that other people exist? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in case the microphone didn't pick it up, is the evil deceiver supposedly deceiving everybody? And Descartes is like, yeah, maybe, but also like, what other people? Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. Maybe the evil deceiver is so powerful that the evil deceiver can even get me to think that, like, I exist when I don't actually exist. Oh, 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 oh. Can that happen? Can the evil deceiver deceive me into thinking that I exist when, in fact, I don't exist? Oh, yeah. It's a possibility. He doesn't have any reason to believe that it's true. He has, a, he has reason to doubt everything because he reasons that it is possible that there is an evil deceiver. Not that it's probable or even that it's a reasonable thing to believe in, but that since it's a possibility, he cannot be certain that there is no evil deceiver, and therefore he cannot be certain of anything at all, except maybe, except maybe what? What does he get back? What's that first thing that he gets in meditation to? I exist, yeah. Yeah, and how does he get that I, ex I exist? He gets it, yeah. He says, I am thinking. Yeah, maybe you've heard that phrase before. I think, therefore I am. Were you looking for it while you were reading? Yeah. Did you find it? No. No, he never says it quite like that. Uh, all, possibly because he never wrote in English. But also maybe you've heard this Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum which also is not in the meditations, which was written in Latin. He never says it quite like that. And it's actually fairly important that he never says, I think, therefore I am. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, I think, therefore I am. There have been other places where he gets really, really close to saying, I think, therefore I am, but he would never say it. He didn't say it in English. And he wouldn't have said it in Latin either. Like in the Discourse on Method, he gets really, really close to, I think, therefore I am. But that's written in French, so it's something else altogether, too. This is one of those weird, sort of like misappropriated close quotes that's not really quite what the guy said. And what he said is, I am thinking, comma, I exist. 
And dropping the therefore is perhaps very, very important, because remember, one of the things that got pitched with this evil deceiver was maybe logical inference is not trustworthy. Even the laws of logic are like kind of up in the air at this point. So I, I, I really, just from a logical perspective, if you've only studied arguments in critical thinking and you don't care about modern metaphysics and epistemology and you're only here for the get credit and all that blah, 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 if I can impress one thing upon you, it's that this is amazing. This is like, while it might seem to be like a relatively pedestrian sort of thing, like I don't know if you've ever seriously doubted whether you exist, and, like, if you were relieved when you found out that, like, oh, good, I do. <laughs> I don't know if this seemed very pressing for you, but just from, like, the perspective of, like, sheer technical virtuosity, this guy drew a conclusion with zero premises. If you think it's impressive to pull a rabbit out of a hat, try pulling yourself out of a hat, but there's no hat, and there's no you. <laughs> it's just one second there was nothing and then suddenly, hey, here I am. Yes? He does not entertain that. Although, if he didn't know that he was deceiving himself, I think deception might have to be intentional in order to count as deception, right? Like, if you're not deceiving somebody on purpose, you're just wrong. Not deceptive. <laughs> yeah. So then it's just like ordinary error, right? Not quite as exotic as the evil deceiver. And Descartes would say, like, I think if I was, like, infinitely powerful, I would know about it. Unless he deceived himself, right? Yeah. But if you don't know that you're deceiving yourself, then you're not really deceiving yourself. You're just wrong. Okay, I am thinking. I exist. Does this work? Descartes is proposing that, like, your own existence... This is not something that can be coherently doubted. Maybe we get it back after throwing everything out in Meditation 1. Maybe we realize that like, we walked back into the empty house and we were like, huh, my existence, I never threw that out. And then when we tried to, we were like, huh, I can't. I actually can't doubt this. Is this true? You cannot coherently doubt your own existence? Yeah, Charles. It might be true that you don't exist? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know if I'm assuming rationality just yet. But maybe, yeah, it's the coherent part, right? The idea that, like, I can't contradict myself, maybe that's what, like, maybe that's something about logical rationality. Maybe Descartes went too far in Meditation 1, and there really is no coming back from this. And he has to cheat a little bit to get this in Meditation 2. I'm not sure. Because there's something... There's something I think really compelling about the indubitability of this. I definitely exist. What if the evil deceiver is deceiving me? Oh, who, I'm sorry, who, who, who is he deceiving? Oh, me? I exist. What if I'm wrong? What if I think I exist, but I don't exist? Who thinks? I think. I am thinking. And notice, we don't even need a therefore. I already said it. I am. I am. I exist. I am I exist isn't an, a logical inference. It's just saying something in different words. I am. 
I exist. Are you sure? Yes. Yes, absolutely certain. There's no way it could be that it could be false. I must. There's no imaginable state of affairs in which I don't exist. Right now. Like I might die someday. There were maybe was a period before I was born where I didn't exist. But right now at least, on the basis of the fact that I am thinking, I must exist. Now, just real quick, and I'm kind of steamrolling some hands just because I want to like make sure that we cover ground, but I'll come right back to you, Pearson. Just to be clear on this, I am running, therefore I exist. Does that work as well? No. Running is a, is a physical sensation? But don't I, but don't I, but don't I have to, I have to exist in order to run? Like I, I, I could say, kuro ergo sum, right? All things that run exist. But we're not saying that all things that exist necessarily think. We're saying all things that think necessarily exist, right? Just like all things that run necessarily exist. So what's the difference? How come this was kohito ergo sum instead of kuro ergo sum? Which would make like a great bumper sticker if you're like a cross-country runner or something. We were close here. Well, yeah, what was it? You can dream about running, but not actually be running, right? You could seem, it could seem to you like you're running, but you're not actually running. Can it seem to you that you're thinking, but you're not actually thinking? Corbin? But you were thinking them, right? Or you were trying. And it yes. And as a matter of fact, Descartes gives us a laundry list of different modes of thinking. He says, like, thinking. There are, like, a, I mean, a variety of things when I talk about thinking. Um, affirming. Yeah, affirming. Denying. And then the obvious partner for those two. Doubting. Perceiving. Imagining. And maybe those are the same thing and maybe not because like if there is a difference between perceiving and imagining, it seems like I perceive things that are actually there but I imagine them by making them up myself and Descartes like, I don't know if there is anything out there. So maybe there is no difference between perceiving and imagining but it seems like I do these things. Well, we can also toss, I can will or I can wish or hope. These are all what he refers to as modes of thought. If you took the existentialism and phenomenology class last semester, maybe you are familiar with the word intentional attitudes. These are various intentional attitudes. Not just the content of a thought, but how that, like what kind of flavor it has and how it's directed towards its object. So I can affirm, I can deny, I can doubt, I can, like all of these things are modes or species of thought. And there's no way that if I think if I think I'm thinking, if I think I'm thinking I'm thinking, right? Even if I think I'm not thinking, I'm thinking. What if I doubt whether or not I'm thinking? Then I'm thinking. Yeah. Can I doubt that I'm doubting? 
Not unless I'm just not paying attention at all, right? If I doubt that I'm doubting, then it's clear that I'm doubting. Because I'm doubting that I'm doubting. That I'm doubting that I'm doubting that I'm doubting. Like it's just, there's no way out of this. I must exist. Now let me be clear on this. When I say that I must exist, I mean I must exist. You guys? I don't know. Maybe you exist. Maybe you don't. I'm not certain about that. We pitch that. When I say I exist, maybe I exist in a material form with a body. I can't kind of like do that. Maybe not. Maybe I don't have a body. I definitely exist. And if I stop and say, like, okay, well, I figured out that I exist, but now I'm wondering, like, what, what am I? What is this I that am, that exists, I that is, I that is? What is it? What's the nature of it? And Descartes says, all we got so far is we know that, like, it's a thinking thing. I am a thinking thing. Starting with nothing at all. And maybe this makes sense. If you emptied your mind of like all of the possible beliefs and you started looking around and you're like, okay, so what now? Like, what are you going to find in there? You're going to find yourself. The thinker of the thoughts, right? I am a thinking thing. This is, this is what I am. This is the self. It's the thinking self. It's the... Ego cogito. We want to get fancy with Latin. Ego Latin. Ego cogito. That ego cogito, it's the thinking self. And Descartes says, like, this is the first step out of this kind of, like, radical, skeptical hell world. And now we enter into a new, much brighter world with just me, the thinking thing, and not, not anything else, really. Just the thinker of thoughts, alone, in the dark. Yes, Corbin. Can you prove that other things exist if they've affected how you thought and how you can't think over the, the progression of your life? Well, perhaps there's an evil deceiver. and that, Well, but maybe the evil deceiver is the other thing, right? Does there have to be at least something else besides me? It's just impossible that I invented all of this by myself. Some of you might be sitting there, at, like, in the audience right now or at home and saying to yourself, like, there's no way I'm dreaming this because there's no way in hell I came up with all this by myself. Like, there's got to be a Descartes or an Adam Rosenfeld or, like, somebody else because I didn't make these ideas up by myself. They are too weird. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, like, give yourself a little more credit. I believe, I believe you're creative enough to come up with this on your own. The word we might be looking for here is solipsism. And you're like, ah, right, that's, yeah, that's, that's the word I wanted. Solipsism. Literally, in Latin, solus ipse, alone with oneself. It's the theory that the only consciousness that there is, that I can be sure of at least, is mine. Other consciousnesses, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, Tana Hawk. So I want to go back to like the I am thinking, which is certain, right? Every time I think I am thinking, I am correct.
We are. Yeah, mm, when I say yeah, I don't mean like, I totally agree. Um, I mean like, yeah, I see what you're saying. And in fact, sometimes I'll get uh, students who will come at this from a kind of an Eastern direction as well and say um, there are plenty of like Eastern philosophical traditions in which what's taught is that the ego is an illusion, right? That the self is an illusion and the way to enlightenment and inner peace is to let go of the self. You realize that there is no me. What's that? Yeah, desire maybe is that. That's one thing to say, like, get rid of desire. But, like, to get rid of me, to get rid of self, can this be done? Descartes suggesting no. It can't be done. Perhaps Rick and Morty as well, suggesting that, like, well, maybe we could complicate this by, like, putting many different subjectivities in the same person. But even then, I would say, have you seen Being John Malkovich? I recommend it wholeheartedly. Any, any Charlie Kaufman script, for that matter. Um, Being John Malkovich, awesome, awesome movie. Kind of relevant to this sort of stuff. If we put multiple subjectivities in one person's head, aren't they still like distinct subjectivities? Like if I don't know what the other subject, like if I have split personality disorder, if that's even a thing. If I have multiple personality disorders, like those are all separate subjectivities, right? One goes to sleep, another one wakes up. They're not the same person. They're all different people. This is what we mean, right? It's the, the thinker of thoughts. I don't know if we can say that. And for that matter, uh, when I was talking before about like um, these kind of like Eastern critiques of the existence of the self as some sort of separate thing, and we say that this is an illusion, that the ego and the self is an illusion. Who's it an illusion for? Who's mistaken when they think like, oh, I'm a self. And they're like, no, you're wrong. You're not a self. Who's wrong? Who's the illusion for? You don't get this just from Eastern directions. You get this from contemporary Western, eliminative materialist philosophers of mine too, who will say the self and consciousness and conscious experience, all of this stuff is an illusion. There's just neurons firing in space. That's it. That's all that there's nothing mystical about mind, nothing that we can say about it other than like its material properties. There's there that like the self is just an illusion that the mind produces for dot dot dot. Who's the illusion for? Well, it shouldn't be that scary. Like you're not disappearing just yet, right? Like there's still a you. That's good. And anybody who would tell you otherwise, they've got a serious hill to climb. <laughs> to try to argue that there is no self has to get past this, possibly one of the most primitive sorts of conclusions ever reached in Western philosophy, which starts from nothing at all and gets to this as something that is absolutely certain. And it's not trivial. It's also not trivial because it's kind of like, it's now the starting point where... This is second meditation. There's four more. We're going to do, like, more. we're going to get more stuff back. We're going to try, at least. And the starting point is kind of important. And maybe there's a certain logic to this starting point, too, to this recognition that, like, look, it starts from everything. If we're going to talk about, like, how do you know what you know about the world, you know? We start with our perspective. Like, the one thing that I know 
is that things seem a certain way to me. I don't know that they are that way, but I know that there's a me and it has experiences. I don't know what those experiences are of just yet, but like I know that. I am. I exist. I'm a thinking thing. The ego cohito. Oh, 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 yes. And when I say that I'm a thinking thing, this now tells me that there are thinking things. At least one. Me. Right? So there are thinking things. Res, the Latin here, and, and, and Descartes does use this phrase in the meditations frequently. Res extens... Uh, oh, hey, we well, almost got it backwards there. Res cohitans. Res cohitans is thinking stuff. Thinking thing. But there's a kind of thing that is a thinking thing. And I'm it. There Maybe there are others. Maybe God's one. Maybe you're one. Maybe there aren't any others and it's just me. But there definitely is a thinking thing. What about bodies? What about tables and chairs? What about material things? Extended things? Lies. Not lies, because that would be taking a position. We're suspending belief. So... Material things, maybe they exist and maybe they don't. He uses the phrase res extensa, extended substance or extended things, things that take up space. Res extensa, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, but if it did exist, it would be a qualitatively different sort of thing than res cohitans. And the way that I know this, by the way, and this is where another label comes in for Descartes, and we'll pick up with this at our next meeting. Descartes is what's usually referred to as a dualist, a substance dualist, in that he says there are at least these two kinds of things in the universe. If, uh, sorry, if there are at least two kinds of things, there are these two kinds of things. There's definitely res cohetans, and if material stuff exists, it's completely different than thinking stuff. And he explains that he knows this and that he must not be, like what you are, or what he is, we don't know if there's a you, what I am, I don't even know if there's a Descartes, I'll speak for myself, what I am is definitely something that thinks. And I know that I exist, and I know that I can think without having any idea of whether or not material things exist at all, that means that what I am is not essentially material, says Descartes. You have a body, perhaps, but you are not your body. You are something else. Yeah, we have a mind-body schism, two different kinds of stuff. This is why it's referred to as a dualism. And that's where we begin in our next meeting, with meditation three and... Uh, yeah, you guys are going to be excited. We get something more. We get something more. It's going to be God.